0: Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution.
1: The world's first forced sterilization law was enacted 100 years ago in 1907. It was signed into law not in Nazi Germany, not in Soviet Russia, not in England, but in the state of Indiana. Two years later, in 1909, Washington state followed suit, along with California and Connecticut, By 1960, more than 60,000 people had been sterilized against their will in the United States, all in the name of a scientific movement known as eugenics that tried to improve society by applying the principles of Darwinian biology to human breeding. Unfortunately, most people know next to nothing about this terrible chapter in American history, and those who do know something about it often misunderstand the ideology that inspired it. This is John West, Associate Director of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. In my book, Darwin Day in America, I retell the story of America's failed crusade for eugenics. It's a cautionary tale that every thoughtful citizen needs to know about. Eugenics might be described as the science of breeding better humans. Positive eugenics focused on encouraging those deemed the most fit to reproduce more, while negative eugenics focused on curtailing reproduction by those deemed unfit, including mental defectives and criminals. Although generally credited to Charles Darwin's cousin Francis Galton, the eugenics movement drew direct inspiration from Darwinian biology and from the writings of Darwin himself. Consider the following passage from Darwin's book the descent of man
0: with savages the weakened body or mind are soon eliminated we civilized men on the other hand do our utmost to check the process of elimination we build asylums for the imbecile the maimed and the sick we institute poor laws and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of every one to the last moment there's reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, would formally have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. Hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed.
1: Darwin did say that because of our sense of compassion, we couldn't simply follow the dictates of hard reason and get rid of the unfit. But he provided a logical basis for why we should get rid of them, and he stressed throughout Descent of Man how man's progress depended on a struggle for survival. Darwin's views provided the Bible for later eugenists. They were not twisting his views. They were logically and rationally applying them. Time and again, American eugenists lamented that we were sinning against the law of natural selection. Take Edwin Conklin, professor of biology at Princeton University, an eventual head of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Conklin argued that while nature may still kill off the worst effectives, nevertheless A good many defectives survive in modern
2: society and are capable of reproduction who would have perished in more primitive society before reaching maturity. Thus, natural selection,
1: the great law of evolution and progress, is set at naught. Harvard geneticist Edward East had similar views. A member of the elite National Academy of Sciences and president of the American Society of Naturalists, East wrote that,
2: Eugenic tenets are strict corollaries of the theory of organic evolution. Nature eliminates the unfit and preserves the fit. Her fool-killing devices were highly efficient in the olden days before civilization came to thwart her. It is man, not nature, who has caused all the trouble. He has put his whole soul to saving the unfit and has timidly failed to do the other half of his duty by preventing them from perpetuating
1: their traits. Then there was Professor H.E. Jordan, head of the medical school at University of Virginia. He argued,
0: What sanitary science and hygiene seek to accomplish by attention to external conditions alone largely defeats its own ends by counteracting the working of the principle of selection.
1: Despite their law-of-the-jungle rhetoric, American eugenists did not advocate going back to the jungle. Instead, they argued that some substitute had to be found for natural selection. That substitute was the directed selection of eugenics. Man had to take control of his own evolution by encouraging the best to breed more and discouraging the worst from breeding at all. According to the eugenists, Human beings were essentially no different than horses, hogs, or blackberries. And so the techniques perfected to breed animals and plants could be easily applied to men and women with just as much success. This was the view of biologist Charles Davenport, another member of the National Academy of Sciences and head of the Biological Research Lab at Cold Spring Harbor, New York, and something called the Eugenics Record Office. According to Dr. Davenport,
2: Man is an animal, and the laws of improvement of corn and of race racehorses hold true for him also.
1: And since breeders of animals and plants are the experts in heredity, the public should let them determine how humans should breed. In the words of inventor and eugenist Alexander Graham Bell,
2: The laws of heredity which apply to animals also apply to man therefore the breeder of animals,
1: is fitted to guide public opinion on questions relating to human heredity. The underlying assumption of the eugenists was a thoroughgoing biological reductionism. In their view, social problems like poverty and unemployment were rooted in man's biology rather than his environment or his free choices. The eugenists had blind faith in modern science that led to utopianism, Dressed up in quasi-religious terminology, the eugenics' faith promised to create heaven on earth through the magic of human breeding. The Garden of Eden is not in the past, it's in the future, promised eugenist Albert Wigum, Confident that modern biology had revealed to them how to breed a better race, eugenists set about turning their scientific ideas into action by restricting those who could marry, by limiting immigration from nations eugenists thought were lower on the evolutionary scale than we were, and by enacting compulsory sterilization laws. By the early 1930s, 30 states had enacted such laws, and eugenists were marketing forced sterilization as the solution to what they depicted as a looming welfare crisis. In a 1926 speech at Vassar College promoting sterilization, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger... Spoke in near apocalyptic terms about the ruinous cost to taxpayers of welfare spending to care for defectives. In
2: 1923, over nine billions of dollars were spent on state and federal charities for the care and maintenance and perpetuation of these undesirables. Year by year, their numbers are mounting. Year by year, their cost is increasing. Huge sums, yes, vast fortunes are expended on these while the normal parents and their children are compelled to shift for themselves and compete with each other. The American public is taxed, heavily taxed, to maintain an increasing race of morons, which threatens the very foundations of our civilization. Our eyes should be opened to the terrific cost to the community of this dead weight of
1: human waste. Eugenists' tendency to depict the underclass almost exclusively as a threat represented a sharp break with the humanitarian principles espoused by traditional philanthropy. Heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian idealism, traditional welfare workers viewed those at the bottom of the social ladder as fellow human beings worthy of sympathy, mercy, care, and exhortation. Eugenists, by contrast, branded them as enemies of civilization that needed to be eradicated. Despite aside that sterilization would be good for presumed defectives, as well as for society, the eugenist harsh rhetoric clearly dehumanized the poor, most of whom were labeled as feeble-minded or otherwise subhuman. According to biologist Charles Davenport, such feeble-minded persons represented animalistic strains from earlier stages of evolution and carried along with them a torrent of defective and degenerate protoplasm. Harvard biologist Edward East dubbed them the parasitic fraction of the population, saying they were
2: like a cancerous growth on the healthy tissues of society.
1: Eugenists also criticized traditional welfare programs for ignoring biological reality, and relying instead on sentimental ideals of humanitarianism and human equality. Margaret Sanger warned of the dangers inherent in the very idea of humanitarianism and altruism, dangers which have today produced their full harvest of human waste, of inequality, and inefficiency, she wrote. Harvard's Edward East attacked as unscientific the idea that man is created in the image of God and suggested that the claim that all human beings have equal worth is ludicrous.
2: One of our prominent social workers is quoted as saying that every child is worth $5,000 to society. Stuff and nonsense. Some of them are not worth 5,000 Soviet rubles. They are liabilities, not assets. Others are worth golden millions. If prosperity is to be promoted,
1: the assets should be increased and the liabilities reduced. By nineteen forty, almost thirty six thousand men and women had been sterilized in public institutions across the United States. Nearly half of the operations occurred in California, which performed more than fourteen thousand sterilizations. Next in line was Virginia, which sterilized nearly four thousand people. Seven other states performed more than a thousand sterilizations each. All told, government-sponsored sterilizations took place in 30 states, and 46 percent of the operations were performed on those classified as feeble-minded, an expansive and slippery category defined largely by prejudice. It's important to understand that the feeble-minded included more than just those who would be considered mentally handicapped today. Indeed, to the untrained observer, many feeble-minded persons might seem perfectly normal. They could read. They could work. They could function and do the tasks that everyone else does. That, in fact, was the problem. People might mistake the feeble-minded for normal people and marry them by mistake, spreading their defective genes to the next generation. The feeble-minded were far more dangerous than obviously mentally handicapped individuals because they could seem so normal. Perhaps the most infamous case of the slipshod way in which people were labeled feeble-minded and selected for sterilization was the case of Carrie Buck. This impoverished Virginia woman was forcibly sterilized in the late 1920s after her appeal failed before the U.S. Supreme Court. This was the case where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes chillingly declared, three generations of imbeciles are enough. By the time of her death in the early 1980s, however, Carrie Buck was no longer considered mentally unfit. She was said to be an avid reader, and she wrote perfectly coherent letters. She married, joined the Methodist church, and returned to singing in the church choir. Her first marriage lasted nearly a quarter of a century, ending with her husband's death in 1956. Her second marriage lasted until her own death in 1983. She spent most of her adult life helping others, wrote J. David Smith. She was a trusted caregiver to elderly people, and one of her employers told me that Carrie couldn't have been mentally retarded. Her competence was obvious, she said, in the quality of care she gave to those who depended on her. There was nothing wrong with that woman's mind, said the employer. So how did eugenics end? Was it the mainstream scientific community that put a stop to this madness? In fact, it was the so-called mainstream scientists that were promoting eugenics as good science. Instead of the scientific establishment, the strongest opposition to eugenics came from conservative religious groups. Roman Catholics probably provided the most consistent opposition from religious groups. Pope Pius XI strongly condemned forced sterilization in an encyclical in 1930 criticizing eugenists for calling on the civil authority to arrogate to itself a power over a faculty which it never had and can never legitimately possess. Evangelical firebrands William Jennings Bryan and Billy Sunday both condemned eugenics, with Bryan dismissing it as a program for scientific breeding under which a few supposedly superior intellects, self-appointed, would direct the mating and the movements of the mass of mankind. By 1930s, some mainstream evolutionary biologists started to make very limited criticisms of eugenics, but most still supported negative eugenics and forced sterilization. And into the early 1940s, a group calling itself the Human Betterment Foundation in California was still sending out more than 100,000 pro-sterilization leaflets for use in college biology and physical education classes around the nation. In the end, it was probably the Nazis who finally caused many people to reconsider the wisdom of the eugenics crusade. In the name of eugenics, the Nazis didn't just sterilize people, they killed them. As the enormity of the Nazi crimes in the name of negative eugenics became clear, many Americans, including those in the medical and scientific communities, recoiled. The additional post-war revelations about Nazi genocide of the Jews effectively killed off old-style eugenics as a mainstream movement, although some true believers continued to propagate the faith after the war. George Santayana famously said that those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So what are the lessons we should learn from the eugenics crusade? Was eugenics simply an example of how politicians can hijack science for their own ends? That's what some Darwinists would have you believe. Yet the leaders of eugenics were largely university-trained biologists and doctors, not politicians. And they pushed for eugenics because they thought it was fully justified by biological science. Eugenics is a branch of biology, social biology, and its study has been cultivated chiefly by the biologists, insisted biologist Charles Davenport. The biologist demands cures instead of first aid, added Harvard's Edward East, who condemned most social service programs as unsound biologically and justified eugenic birth control as the appropriate scientific alternative. Maybe eugenics should be held as an example of the dangers of fringe science. Actually, eugenics represented mainstream science, not the fringe, Eugenists were affiliated with institutions like Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, and Stanford. They were leaders in America's most prestigious scientific organizations, like the National Academy of Sciences and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Paleontologist Henry Fairfield Osborne was director of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which sponsored an extensive exhibit promoting eugenics during the third international congress of eugenics. In sum, the leading eugenists were members of the scientific establishment and their views became so dominant for a time that eugenics was for all practical purposes the consensus view of the scientific community in America for decades. Indeed, eugenics exposes the danger of simply trusting the current scientific consensus because it can be wrong. Perhaps eugenics should be regarded as an example of science reforming itself through the scientific method. Then again, maybe not. There were a handful of mainstream biologists who raised criticisms of eugenics, but usually even they supported the public policies of forced sterilization of the feeble-minded. The most consistent critics of eugenics were Roman Catholics and Protestant fundamentalists, If anything, eugenics highlights the value and importance of even non-scientists in raising questions and participating in the public debate over science and public policy. The real lesson of eugenics is the danger of allowing scientists to rule simply because of their superior scientific expertise. Historically speaking, the eugenics movement is important because it was one of the first efforts to try to expand the power of scientists over the rest of society. Eugenists claimed that their superior scientific knowledge trumped the beliefs of non-scientists, and so they should be allowed to design a truly scientific welfare policy. Critics of eugenics disputed this claim early on pointing out that good public policy requires a knowledge broader than just scientific expertise. When Pennsylvania's governor, Samuel Pennypacker, vetoed his forced sterilization proposal in 1905, for example, he announced,
2: Scientists, like all other men whose experiences have been limited to one pursuit, sometimes need to be restrained. Men of high scientific attainments are prone, in their love for technique, to lose sight of broad principles outside their domain of thought.
1: Eugenics remains a tainted word, and in recent years, a number of states, including California and Virginia, have issued apologies for their forced sterilization programs. But while government-imposed eugenics may no longer be popular, the eugenists' underlying claim that scientists should rule because of their scientific expertise is more deeply ingrained in the American political psyche than ever. Whether the issue is stem cell research, global warming, teaching about evolution, or something else, some are trying to claim that it represents a war on science for anyone to challenge the current scientific consensus when it comes to public policy. In fact, it's a defense of good science to allow open debate and discussion about current scientific views genuine science thrives on free inquiry. In coming decades, as the powers of science continue to grow apace with new discoveries in genetics, neuroscience, and computers, we would be well advised to remember the historical dangers of allowing those who claim to speak in the name of science full reign to dictate public policy. We'd also do well to remember the critical importance of allowing all citizens to raise questions and dispute public policy claims made in the name of science. If you would like more information on the history of eugenics in America, I'd encourage you to read my book, Darwin Day in America. You can visit the book's website at www.darwindayinamerica.com. That's darwindayinamerica.com. For I.D. the future... This is John West.
0: This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.